You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Sidney Stern, the author of The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics. If you are a fan or maybe not a fan of the new David Fincher movie all about Mank, you will definitely want to check this out, even if you don't care about the movie at all. You're going to want to read this book. It's pretty awesome. Check it out and enjoy the interview. Can you tell me a little bit of your history, and especially when it comes to writing, how did you become a writer? I was a reporter researcher at Fortune, and I did some different kinds of freelance work. And then my first book was on the toy business, and that sort of came out of my Fortune background. Both my first two books were suggested to me by my then agent, who then subsequently died. There was a long hiatus between my Gloria Steinem biography, which came out of my agent said, you know, you're an avid feminist. Why don't you do a biography of Gloria Steinem? And my reaction was, why would she want me to write her biography? And he said, well, not authorized, unauthorized. So off I went. And then I loved doing biography. So then I was looking for someone else to write about. Well, not only do you get to write one biography with your new book, but you get to write two. Exactly. I was looking for somebody really complicated and contradictory, like Gloria was, and I got not one but two complicated, contradictory people, and I thought the whole was bigger than the sum of their two parts. Although it was really a challenge to put the two of them together, more than I thought it would be, uh, for various reasons. How long ago did you decide that you were going to write about the Mankiewicz brothers? I first made contact in 2009, I had put a Google Alerts on Mankiewicz, you know, on my computer, and I found out that Rosemary Mankiewicz, Joe's widow, was donating his papers to the Academy's library, the Herrick. So I went out there for it and just sort of thrust myself upon everybody there. Sidney Poitier was there, Martin Landau, a lot of Mankiewicz's, Tom, who have since gone, Tom was there. John was there. Ben was the MC. I'm pretty sure Josh was there. Tim Davis, another grandson of Herman. You know, I just sort of went on from there. And Rosemary lived in Westchester. So that was very convenient. And I just sort of, over the years, gained her confidence. She had wanted a biography to be written. A lot of books have been written about Joe and his work. But uh, Herman had a biography in 1978. And so did Joe. Both those men were alive, and Joe's biographer was very helpful to me, Kenneth Geist. Um, he made sure that his interviews were made available to me. He had donated the recordings to the AFI, and um, they ended up making me copies, and that was extremely valuable because a lot of the people have died since. 
Well, yeah, that's got to be very difficult. At least when you're dealing with Gloria Steinem, she's still alive and a lot of her contemporaries are still alive. But with the Mankiewicz brothers, I mean, Herman died in 53 and uh, Joseph was 93. So this is, quote unquote, ancient history at this point. It was very different kind of research than I was used to. I came out of magazines and the toy book was the same thing. Well, I used some history and a little bit of library research. It was mostly finding people, interviewing them, using the the toy book was also about the business. So there were documents for that. But it was very much an alive kind of research. And this turned out to be a lot of library research and a lot of archival research. And that's why it took so long. The archives at the Academy are only open four days a week for a limited amount of time, and you can only have them photocopy 100 pages a year. You can imagine if you've done, yeah, I mean, you, I would say on the Gloria book when I was in her page, she had donated her papers at Smith. I would just put in markers, you know, copy this, copy that. So I'd have hundreds and hundreds of pages from each visit. So I had to go out there and type things on my computer sitting there. And a couple of times my computer broke. Also, when I went out to uh, Indiana, where the Orson Welles papers were and the Pauline Kale, et cetera, my computer broke the day I got there. I think it was very delicate and cheap and it got banged up. So I was sitting there doing handwritten notes. So that made it even worse. That's my excuse (laughs) for taking so long. But it really, you know, that was very time consuming. And it was also that Hollywood stories, Hollywood's a land of storytellers, right? So everything gets embellished. So trying to get to how true is this was a challenge. How familiar were you with their work before you started on this endeavor? I am not a movie expert. I'm a, now I'm a Mankiewicz expert, I would say. But I had a very steep learning curve learning Hollywood history, getting um, deep into their movies. Um, I had only seen a few. I do remember seeing Cleopatra when it came out, which was the 60s. but they were before my time, and I didn't know a lot of movie lore, so I had to learn everything. And Alex Mankiewicz, who is Joe's daughter by his by Rosemary, his third wife, said um, her father would have loved that about me being his biographer, that I was not going to him through the movies. I was getting to his movies by trying to understand him. And so I, I hope it was a virtue. It was what it was. Um, they were fascinating people. And then, of course, I loved their movies, too. Was it difficult to track down everything that they had done? Um, Well, a lot of the, certainly from the silent era, a lot of that's just lost. It's just destroyed. And and, um, some of the early movies, I got these DVDs from online that were like terrible pirated copies of things. But at least I could get a sense of things, even some of the silent movies. So the early stuff was hard. And I think some of it I've never seen because it, you know, it doesn't seem to exist anymore. But then once we got into the thirties or at least the, you know, talkies and later mid to late thirties. Yes. I've seen things. I mean, for example, there's, there's a, a movie that Herman did in 1942, I guess, 40, right after Citizen Kane, Rise and Shine. I love it. It's totally silly. It's very Marx Brothers. It's based on an Ogden Nash piece, a book that he had written, this one character. It's got Jimmy Durante. It's got Linda Darnell. It's got Walter Brennan. It's got marching bands that do ridiculous things. It's just crazy. And, and I had a very bad copy of that, but I still loved it. That kind of thing. Yes, it was hard to track down. 
I had no idea that Herman Mankiewicz was involved with the Marx Brothers until I read your book. Right. Well, he actually knew them in New York when he was a theater critic and, and was friends with them, kind of, and wrote about them in The New Yorker, joking that people thought that they made up their own material and did it on stage and you know, kind of joked about that then. How involved were they with one another, especially when it came to their careers? Well, that was one of the challenges in writing the book, because I thought they were they grew up in the same family. They were in the same town. They were doing the same work. I would have lots of time that I would be writing about both of them. But I hardly found any scenes that I could put them in the same room together. They worked on different movies and they were almost 12 years apart. However, Herman, who had a career as a journalist and he was an Algonquin habitué in New York, et cetera, et cetera, went to um, Hollywood in 25. They both graduated from college very, very young. And Joe came out in early 29. He was not quite 20. He had a February birthday. So he was there not long after Herman, even though there was this big age difference. And Herman's attitude was, I'm just making a few bucks. I'm going back to New York. That's where my real life is. I want to write plays, et cetera, et cetera. And Joe eventually shared some of that disdain. But when he came out at first, he you know, he had this big, successful brother helping him along. Joe got, um, Herman got Joe a job at Paramount. And um, he had stars in his eyes. And he was a real go-getter and was, in general, his trajectory went up and eventually Herman started going down and they crossed each other. It was a complicated brother relationship, too. I mean, Herman was a father figure at first, and then just as they were becoming more brotherly was when Herman really was so self-destructive, he started on his way down, and Joe continued out. The level of education that both of these men had was remarkable. What do you think that they owed that education and that drive that they both seemed to have so much? Was that due to their upbringing? Yes, their father was very intellectual, very smart. They were, they were very, very, very smart. And they had a sister in the middle, by the way, Erna, who was in, very intelligent like they were, but didn't have the sense of humor. One of the things they were both known for was wit. They had music at home. They had culture. Their father had been, he hadn't graduated from University of Berlin, but he was college educated. And when he came over, he eventually found his way into education and that became his calling. And he tried first with Herman and later with Joe to turn them into an academics. He thought educating the young was the highest calling a person could have. But theater and movies and comedy called, and, and he couldn't get either of them to follow him into education, although his daughter did. But they were very erudite, both of them. Although Herman particularly cared about history and politics, and Joe was more theater. I do have to ask, since there is this interest in Mank, the movie, and all of this, how Herman Minkowitz got involved with Orson Welles and um, his involvement with Citizen Kane? Like going out to Hollywood and ending up staying for Herman, which was that he had just gone out to make enough money to pay off a gambling debt that stayed for the rest of his life. It's almost accidental in the other direction. By, the, by 1939, he had been fired from every major studio. He had terrible drinking and gambling problems, and he had a free ride back to New York. So he decided in 1939, he was about 42 he was born in 1897. So he decided to go back and try to rekindle his job in New York. And um, on the way, they only he and the, the young man who was driving him only got as far as 
New Mexico when they were in a terrible car accident. So he was brought back to, to L.A. where he was in a full body cast with his leg broken in three places. And among his visitors was Orson Welles. They had met in New York. Couldn't be too long ago because Orson Welles was all of 24. <laughs> but he was a boy genius. He was a radio star. He was very creative. He had been doing plays with John Hausman in the Mercury Theater. They were running out of even his uh, earnings from radio could not cover Mercury's expenses. So he just he took a, a movie contract to make enough money to go back and do theater as well. And when he came to Hollywood, everyone shunned him, Orson Welles, because he had this contract to produce, write, star, direct and star in a movie of his choice. And he got final cut. And this was all unheard of in Hollywood and all these. Um, studio employees who basically sold their souls to work for, for the big bucks in the studios and they lost a lot of creative control. So it was sort of, it was golden handcuffs. So they were very resentful of Orson Welles. And Herman was one of the few people who was nice to him. So Welles would come and visit him and Welles was having trouble with his contracts. I mean, fi finding a movie, he was going to do Heart of Darkness for RKO and it was it had come in over budget. So he and and Herman sat around brainstorming, and out of that came this idea to do a biopic based on William Randolph Hearst, who Herman knew. And um, then out of that brainstorming came the idea that Herman should do the first draft. And uh, Wells had not didn't really have screenwriting um, experience, but he was a good editor. So it was just it was never. I mean, you know, you don't know you're going to write an icon <laughs> when you're doing it. You're just Filling this, fulfilling this contract, and they wrote their way into history. Well, and you mentioned Rise and Shine, but it feels like after, I don't know if Kane was, it wasn't the midpoint necessarily, but you were talking about how his star was on the decline, because he doesn't seem to have written that much afterwards, I mean, compared to what he had written before. First of all, he was not uh, that much a, a studio employee anymore. Studio system was starting to decline. He did, however, co-write Pride of the Yankees, the Lou Gehrig story, and was nominated for a, an Academy Award for screenwriting for that one as well. And then he did other movies, Christmas Holiday, which is a very kind of noir movie with Deanna Durbin and Gene Kelly, Cast Against Type. Um, a Spanish Main, which is a swashbuckling um, movie about pirates starring Paul Henri. And um, the the last movie that he wrote that he had produced was Pride of St. Louis about Dizzy Dean, which is sweet but slight. And he never, uh, well, at that point, that was certainly Citizen Kane was the peak of what he realized was his career, but he still did not realize he was going into the history books for it. It was just, you know, a wonderful movie that he had co-written. And at the end, he was trying to write a biopic about this evangelist, Amy, I guess it's pronounced Amy Simple McPherson, called Woman of the Rock, based on a, a novel about her. And he did the same thing he did with Citizen Kane. He he showed the script to her relatives, and that got it killed. This time it got it killed, as opposed to when he did it with the Citizen Kane script, which he didn't self-destruct as much as he was capable of doing. You mentioned Cleopatra before, and I'm curious... As far as how that affected Joseph Mankiewicz, because I know that was one of the most infamous bombs for a long, long time. I divide Joe's life into B.C. and A.C. because he it just 
it was, you know, it, it sapped his confidence in himself. He never really was not the same. And he was only, that was, it was a 1963 film. So that means he was 54. So he had a long life after that. He lived into his 80s and he did more movies, but that just broke him. He picked it up when it had already been started. It was not in good shape. They had started shooting without a final script because Elizabeth Taylor had this ridiculously high-paying salary and the, and 20th Century Fox was in trouble. So they wanted to shoot because of her salary instead of stopping getting a salary and, and getting a script that would enable them to create the sets, et cetera, and, and film in a, in a responsible way. So he was ended up writing at night and directing by day and taking drugs to be awake, taking drugs to go to sleep. So it ruined his health, his self-confidence, et cetera. And at the end, he was very um, humiliatingly fired by Daryl Zanuck and blamed for all the problems. When my husband was reading that chapter, when it was in a, in a uh, draft, and here he had kept saying, please, let's stop shooting. Let me finish writing. And then at the end, when they said, you know, it, you chose to do this, and my husband came in and said, that didn't really happen, did it? That was so unjust. And I said, yeah, it really did. So you're, you're humiliated. And the uh, injustice of it all, of course, made him even more infuriated. Up to that point, he was just knocking him out of the park. There were so many titles on his CV where I'm just like, oh, wow, the same guy did all of these things. This is amazing. And, you know, what's interesting about them is they hold up No Way Out, which was Sidney Poitier's um, debut, really, in major films is a 1950 film about race. And I challenge you to find many films from the 50s or even 60s about race that you don't writhe at watching them. But it was very, it really does hold up. It was about race. You know, racism was a bad thing. And um, it's, it's, it's really a, a film that he was proud of. And, and uh, when there was a retrospective of his work, and I think it was 2014 here um, at, the film, uh, in, at the film festival in New York, I was asked if I wanted to introduce a film, and I chose that one because I get so impressive. And Linda Darnell does very good work, and Richard Widmark is, you might not be surprised, you know, he's so evil, you hate him. <laughs> and he was very, very nice to Poitier, and um, he was the first one to invite Sidney Poitier to his home in, in Hollywood. And uh, Poitier told the story at this 2009 event that was a tribute to Joe, that every time he'd say these horrible racist lines, he would apologize. And finally, Poitier said, we're actors, they're lines, it's okay. <laughs> what was some of the most difficult part of putting this book together? It's been interesting to me, the reaction about this book, because one of the major difficulties was the imbalance of material that I had between the two brothers. I had so much on Joe. He did so many important movies. His personal life was full of events because he had three wives and affairs with people like Joan Crawford and Judy Garland. And through Rosemary, I had access to his diaries. So I really had what, how he was reacting to things, at least in, from the 50s on. With Herman, the trail was very cold. And I had to go back and try to recreate things. At the very end, Ben Mankiewicz told me about um, a little moment that he appears in the front page in 1931, about three minutes in, I think. He's going looking for Hildy Johnson, and they, you know, there's a speakeasy, and they open the door, and he asks for him, and, and he has lines. And that was the only time I ever heard Herman's voice, whereas I've seen a lot of footage of Joe and you know on TV and things like that. 
So trying to write a book where people felt like they were reading about two people and to make Herman come as alive as Joe was a real challenge. And yet the reviews have been Herman, Herman, Herman. It's fascinating. I'm thinking, did you not notice Joe? Because there's a lot about Joe in there. So it was, it was, that was really surprising. You just never know how things are going to be received or what's going to intrigue people. Once their fortunes turned and one was on the up and the other's going down, was there much jealousy or interaction between these two? Well, Herman died, as you said, in 1953. Joe left Hollywood and moved back east in 1951, 52. He had been planning to do it for a while. He decided he wanted to raise his sons not in a company town. He wanted to be in New York. He also shared Herman's desire to write for theater, lesser respect for movies. I saw an interview where he was quoted. I feel like it was the 80s, but I'm not sure. And he said, I'm not just a screenwriter. I'm a writer. I directed La Boheme and blah, blah, blah. But he really was a screenwriter. And not at the very end of his life, he appreciated what he had done. But it took a, you know pretty much a whole life to do that. So at the end, in those last few years, he did, uh, Joe did go to visit Herman and everything. But they led, they overlapped as family, but they had separate friends generally. There, obviously, there was some overlap too. But there was, it was complicated. You know, when, when asked about sibling rivalry, I would say Joe, the younger one, was much more conscious of Herman. And Herman was of Joe. Herman was a first child who, you know, thought the world revolved around him and took both pride in Joe's accomplishments and, you know, would make fun of him too. But, but it was a, it was a brother relationship, like all are, I think. Competitiveness, love, loyalty, etc. What were some of the more surprising things that you found as you were doing your research? I kept reading that Pop their father was such an important influence and that's why they didn't feel as successful as they should have because they weren't what pop wanted them to be academics or they didn't fulfill their potential and as a good feminist and and no one women had not written about them all their biographies all their books are men and I thought they've overlooked their mother the mother I'm going to discover Johanna I'm going to find out she had to be important, and um, I did find from something Joe had written. He said, we got our sense of humor from our mother. She was the good storyteller, but basically, it really was pop, pop, pop. He really was the key. <laughs> so with all that hunting, the, the conventional wisdom was right, and that's something I've learned about reading biography. When th These certain themes will start to emerge when you're first doing research, and you don't really know your subject. And it, it often seems so obvious that I would brush it off. This happened with all three of my books. And then at the end, they were right. People were right. It was just my job to go deeper in that. It wasn't wrong. I just needed to explain it better. So that was, <laughs> that was my comeuppance. There were certainly stories. Families tell you stories, and this is true with all biographies. And one of the stories I kept being told was with Citizen Kane, Eventually, Herman and Wells and RKO were sued for plagiarism by Ferdinand Lundberg, who had written a biography of Hearst. And he said, you, you stole my material and you put it in the movie and you didn't acknowledge it. And it, while RKO stalled for years, but eventually they had to go to New York and go to trial. And Don Mankiewicz told me, and I think Frank did too, that Herman kept saying, you know, I never saw this book. We didn't see this book. And then they gave... Lundberg's lawyers 
Elizabeth Herman's library, and it turned out there were three copies of his biography in in the library. But I got the testimony, and in fact, that's not what happened. What happened was Herman said it's a tendentious, you know, it's the kind of biography I don't even, of course I read it, but I didn't put any value in it. So it wasn't quite as good a story, but they did lose the suit. <laughs> they they had to pay a minimal amount for uh, to poor Lundberg for the use of his book. So there are a lot of stories like that, you know, that sound good and don't really hold up. After researching this book and working on it for so many years, was there a sense of sadness or more of a sense of relief when you were done with it? Oh, sadness. Sadness. I, I, I'm very attached to them. Although it was interesting because, as I said, there weren't, they weren't usually in each other's chapters. There'd be chapters, I'd be deep into Citizen Kane, or I'd be deep into All About Eve, or a personal passage or something like that. And when I was writing that, I was writing a book about Joe Mankiewicz. You know, Herman was just this tangential character, and vice versa. When I was deep in Herman, that was where I was just subsumed. So it was sort of like swimming back up to surface, you know, if you die where down, or, or being in a really deep state of sleep and you can't get back out of it. So I was very attached to both of them, and I'm still having a little withdrawal. This man- The movie and, and an opportunity to talk about the book, it's, it's nice to drag it out. How did the family react to the book? They've been so supportive. Alex said they all like it, which is amazing because they're all very different. Generally, biographers end up finding things that families didn't know, and usually you hope it's good things, not evil secrets or something like that. Mankiewicz is they're all witty and they're all smart and they're you know good storytellers, and it's, it's great. And I was able to interview several who have died since. Both Herman's sons, lived into several a lot of years that I was interviewing them, Don and Frank. And Joe's son Tom died in twenty twelve, which was awful. He was sixty eight. So I interviewed all the children who had lived. There was only one child who had died before I started. Johanna Davis, Joe Davis, who died really young in her thirties. So they they were really helpful. And another person who was very helpful was Frank Mankowitz's former wife Holly, who was the mother of Josh and Ben. And she was one of the few people I could interview who knew Herman, and although she didn't know him that long. I also interviewed a bunch of Josie's friends. Johanna, the daughter, was born in 1937. So her friends knew him as their friend's father. So they were teenagers. But, but when I inter- was interviewing them, they, were, they had an adult's perspective, so they could give me some material about Herman and Sarah. With the movie coming out, have you been busy doing any sort of events or anything? And and hopefully it's helped uh, sell some books. Well, I hope so. I mean, whatever events there are are virtual, of course. But I've seen it so far. I've seen it three and a half times. And I love it. And I'm so close to it that I keep wondering, you know, how will it feel to others who are not immersed in Herman and Citizen Kane? And there's a Joe and a Sarah uh, and... um, it's been a very weird experience and wonderful. I, I love it visually and orally, and and I like the characterizations that he chose to have, which was a great relief for me. You know the story they're telling, and you're involved, and you hear them exaggerating and saying all these things wrong and wanting to say, no, that's not what happened. Um, and of course, you have to take liberties in a biopic, but it was amazing. I felt 
all the fictional things that they did were in service of reality. You know, it was emotionally true to me. I wasn't there. I'm just imagining, you know, it's the Herman that they present is slightly more noble than the Herman that I believe really existed, but it's a movie person. But it's the um, irascible, self-destructive curmudgeon with a heart of gold that I believe Herman to have been pretty much, if I could sum up a man in five words or less. Do you have another project on the horizon that you're working on? I have been working on one. I, I can't tell you who yet, be, but it's the the parent-child family issue interested me, and it's sort of been reinforced reading about Jack Fincher and David Fincher, you know, this interaction of creativity and wanting to please your parents and being influenced by your parents. So I would like to stay in the Hollywood world at least for one more because it took me all that time to learn it, and um, it's fun. You know, it's, it's a world of fun and make-believe and creativity. So, yeah, I'm hoping to do another Hollywood biography, maybe in less than 10 years this time. Sydney Lattison Stern, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. Is the best place to keep up with you at uh, the Sydney L. Stern website? Yes. Well, I haven't done anything on it lately, which I need to update, but yes. And that is also the way if anybody needs to write me, you can write me through the website at Sydney L. Stern. So, oh, and I'm tweeting a lot these days. I sort of got into that because people were tweeting about the book. So I started tweeting and during COVID, it's been a community. It's a terrible time waster, but it's really kind of fun. Sydney underline Stern. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Just by his action has the traction magnet.
dog with wealth and fame. He's still the same. I'll bet you five you're not alive if you don't know his name. Thank you.